Let's stand together and read God's Word together. The verses that will be our focus this morning are Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6, among the greatest words in all the Bible. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 4, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We have in these words the great doctrine that I pray your soul rests upon the doctrine of substitutionary atonement prophesied by Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus offered himself as our atoning sacrifice at Calvary. We're going to pray and uh, then set our hearts and minds upon these things. Would you bow your heads with me? And then my pastoral encouragement for you this morning is as we pray that you really pray. Have a measure of Jacob in you that you grab a hold of God and say, give me a word, give me a blessing. Father, this, if we have grace to understand it, is a, is a moment of great opportunity for us, the people of God gathered in Jesus' name to study the Word of God. And so give us grace that this is not um, just a mental exercise or a box that we checked this morning. We have come to meet with the living God, and we believe that you reveal yourself in Scripture. So this precious passage, God, I pray the Holy Spirit would Use it among us for the very purpose that these words were inspired to Isaiah to point us to the one who carries our griefs. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Maybe seated, of course. Had the great privilege of spending last week with some of the wonderful children of Calvary Baptist Church and You know, being around children is always interesting, and uh, at times it can be a little bit humorous, just quite frankly. And so one of our devotion times we were studying, spent most of the week in and around Colossians, and so I had a group of about four boys, and I got on the floor with them, which is uh, not as easy as it used to be, and opened up the Bible, and we were reading in particular the passage to clothe yourselves with humility and kindness and compassion and just talking to the to the boys there I said you know what humility means and one of the boys quickly spoke out and said isn't that when it's really hot outside humility and I said it's not quite it's not quite what it means humility humility can I give you a definition of humility because I keep bumping up against this word in my life our fighter verse this week starts with Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Humility for us, by and large, means that we recognize God is in charge, God is in control, and we're not. And in Isaiah, I want you to recognize from these verses that it's good. You have a good God who's in charge. He is not working things to your detriment. He is working all things together for your good, and listen to me, at great cost to himself. Now, if we were to uh, 
and this is how they used to do it. If we were to write this passage, Isaiah's suffering servant passage, which really starts in Isaiah 52, 13 and goes through 53, 12. If we were to write it on a scroll and write it from top to bottom and say, um, put it on the wall here, what you would find is the very center of his words is this passage. It's at the very center of what he's saying. And that's not by accident. When God was calling attention to what he wants to say through Isaiah in the suffering servant passage, he puts particular three verses that we would call them three verses at the very center. And what I want you to know is that this is the very center of God's revelation to you, is that he's done something. A substitutionary atonement is the very core, the very centerpiece of the whole Bible. So I want you to grab a hold of it today. I don't want it to be something that's sort of on the side of your life. This is where you want to plant your two feet and build your life, build your family, build everything, build your eternity without exaggeration on what Isaiah says here in this passage that we would have some humility. Where we've been, uh, we've had a couple of studies so far, is first of all, we learned that the servant that Isaiah prophesies, his words, his actions are astonishing. And I pray you haven't gotten over what Jesus has done, that it still has a measure of astonishment to you. What he does, how he comes, right? That when God shows up, he is the suffering servant. We need to see this. He does not send the suffering servant. He actually is the suffering servant. And when he comes, what we learned the last time we were together in Isaiah is he's rejected Isaiah 53, verse 2, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. That was our key word last time, the word rejected. It's a painful word, isn't it? In fact, most of us make our decisions on the basis of not being rejected. We studied last time we were together the truth of God's word that says man looks on the outward appearance but God looks at the heart we are prone to our detriment I might add to be impressed by and drawn to people based on their outward appearance and Isaiah is prophesying when the suffering servant comes he's not going to have an appearance or a majesty that people say wow look at him right and we need a course correction in this because we are a people who choose Saul as the king and not David right We esteem Caesar who enslaves us, not Jesus who frees us. We are impressed by physical beauty and material wealth and political power. And the servant, the first time he comes, has none of these things, does he? But we'll do well, friends, right, to know that when he returns in all of his power and all of his glory, that all of our standards of measurements of those things will be revealed for what they are, very shallow and temporary. Just want to encourage you again here in this point because this is a powerful obstacle in American culture. So I just briefly for a moment just pause again just to ask you, are you caught up in an unhealthy emphasis of the outward appearance? When it comes to your own life, when it comes to the life of your family, when it comes to your expectations for your children, are you a little too wrapped up in the outward appearance? Because I want you to know that It doesn't go well for anybody, including even those who have a pleasant outward appearance. You still get enslaved in a trap of destruction and death, quite frankly. 
when Jesus appears, he has no form or majesty that we should desire him. This gives us a vitally important lesson, and it's this. It's not our outward appearance that needs to be changed, friends, right? We don't need outward appearance alterations. We need inward transformation. We didn't do this this morning for good reason, but just suppose that I brought a pig in here, up here at the front. We call him Wilbur, of course, because after our good friends in Charlotte's Web, that's the name I always give to pigs. And let's just pretend we scrubbed him up nice and clean, right? And then we just said to the pig, you're so clean now, I don't want you to ru- uh, uh, tumble in the mud anymore. Don't roll around the mud anymore. And pat the pig on the head and send him out. What have we done? We have cleaned up the outward appearance. But if you don't want the pig to get in the mud anymore, what would have to happen? You would have to change its nature. You have to get there in the inside and change its preferences change its instincts it would have to become a new creation and i want you to see that that's exactly what the bible says salvation is that's why the game of changing the outward appearance particularly in church and religious circles is so destructive has your inward nature been transformed your preferences changed your appetites from ungodliness to godliness that's what it means friends to be converted Not to clean up the outward appearance and then go back out and have the same instincts and desires, right? That's what the scripture means, that salvation is being renewed, right, in the spirit of your minds. We don't need to change the outward appearance. Unless something's done about our sinful heart, we'll keep rolling around in the mud of pornography and anger and jealousy and fear and materialism and greed and spiritual indifference and no heart for the loss and no peace and we will not be healed, which is what this scripture promises will happen to those who believe in the suffering servant. Your sorrows and griefs are actually carried. I want you to see the, uh, the heart of it is, verse 4, we've got griefs and sorrows and by the end of verse 6, We have peace and healing. It's a good place just to have some consideration. Has that happened in your life? That you've gone from the griefs and sorrows of sin to the healing and peace with God. Now, I want you to know that the only remedy, we all listening together? The only remedy for our griefs and sorrows is Jesus. Now, You'll have some lies and some temptations to believe that your griefs and sorrows can be healed and carried by other things, but they will actually only lead to more griefs and sorrows. So we're going to spend two Sunday mornings on this passage where Isaiah makes a remarkable promise and prediction that one is coming, again, whose outward appearance is not that impressive, but he's going to come to bring healing and peace. Do you see it again? Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So we're going to answer two questions over two Sundays, one this morning and one next Sunday. What does he do? And then how does he do it? Those are our two questions. So we're going to answer the first one this morning. What is it that Isaiah promises this suffering servant will do? And here's the answer to the question. The servant will put an end to our griefs 
and our sorrows. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Can I make a very obvious statement? Life is full of grief and sorrow. Had any grief or sorrow in your life? Had any disappointments? Any, I thought it was going to go this way and it didn't go this way. In fact, it kind of went the opposite way. And I'm full of grief, full of sorrow. And this is true of us on every level, isn't it? It's true physically. Life is full of grief and sorrow. Our physical bodies start to break down. Legs that used to run all day. Y'all, I was on the treadmill yesterday. All of a sudden, I looked at my 11-year-old son with great envy. How do you just keep running? And running and running. Legs that used to run all day very quickly are not able to walk across the room. Backs, necks, hips. I was getting there. Arms, legs, ankles deteriorate. Full of grief, isn't it? Full of sorrow. Our hearing fades. Our sight, all of a sudden we have to hold it far away or up close or neither work anymore. Our ability to remember, anybody there? Beginning to fade. And this can cause so much, all humorous, cause so much grief and sorrow. Is there something in your heart that's longing for a body that doesn't break down? Good news, good news. There's healing to be found in the servant by what he does in his body. Emotionally, grief and sorrow weighed down with unwise decisions and missed opportunities. We all have bad cases of I wish I would have's that are so bad, the only thing worse than that is the, I wish I hadn't. Emotional pain of loved ones who are no longer here. Emotional pain of fractured relationships. In fact, in fact, some of us have endured such great sorrow that we just cut off emotionally, quite frankly. We just withdrew. And we're kind of living in a <laughs> protective shell. The sorrow has been so great. If you think the physical pain that the suffering servant endured was significant, take another look at his emotional pain. I'm saying that because I don't want you to think that you have a God who is far removed from grief and sorrow. We just read it. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That word acquainted in English is, I just have an acquaintance, I just kind of know. And that's not the Hebrew word. It means very familiar with. Grief. And sorrow. Look at the best known people in the Bible and you'll quickly think of their griefs and sorrows. You think Adam had griefs and sorrows? Why did I do that? Abraham, does he have any griefs or sorrows? How could I have been so foolish? Moses, does he have griefs and sorrows? How much time have I wasted? Naomi, does she have any griefs or sorrows? Why did we ever go to Moab? David, 
What was I thinking that night when I took a walk on my roof? Peter, why in the world when they said, do you know him? And I responded, I have no idea who he is. Paul, why did I spend so much of my life angry? Now listen to me very carefully. All of their griefs and sorrows were based on decisions that they made thinking that it would remedy their grief and sorrow. They sought things they thought would heal them, and really it ruined them. We need the right remedy for our griefs and sorrows because the devil is a liar and he doubles down. Saying, you've got grief, you've got sorrow, i got the solution for it. And he doesn't. He only has more grief and sorrow. So listen to me very carefully. You think that that adulterous affair is going to be exciting and fulfilling? Listen to me. It's only grief or sorrow. You think smudging a little bit on the business deal will help because it will bring in a little bit more money and that will ease some of the griefs or sorrows? might not be completely honest, but nobody's ever going to know. Listen to me. It's only going to bring grief and sorrow. You think keeping your mouth closed about Jesus and not being a witness for him will make life easier and smoother? It will only bring grief and sorrow. I found a helpful example for my life in my morning Bible reading. Can I just give a plug to morning Bible reading? If you're not reading your Bibles in the morning, let me just give a plug to morning Bible reading. If you want God to speak to you in your life, but you're not reading the Bible regularly, what's the polite way of saying this? You lost your mind. 2 Kings chapter 15. If you want a word from the Lord, read the Bible. 2 Kings chapter 15. Now, uh, I'm somebody who in the not too distant past got busy and got away from my daily Bible reading. I'll just say that. And, uh, Just encouragement, if you've done that, God's eager to have you back. 2 Kings chapter 15, read a couple verses. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, began to reign. So if you read that, your morning, you need to think, here's a person who's been given a lot of responsibility and has a prestigious position. What does he do with that position? He was 16 years old. Wow. He's old enough to have his driver's license, and he's reigning. He began to reign. If you're 16 years old, set your eyes on Jesus. He reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was of Jerusalem. Now I'm pausing here. Because I believe God's word is alive and it's active and it's sharp. And I think it's about to cut. Because I think it's going to describe, and you say, well, this is talking about some old person, some long ago, and he was 16 years, it has nothing to do with me. This has everything to do with you. Because the description given right here is going to apply to some people in the room. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Nevertheless... The high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Look at verse 8. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, 
the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel and Samaria six months. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his fathers has done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That's why we need to read our Bibles, because here's the description. Somebody who had kind of a heart for the Lord wasn't as bad as some other people that we could point out, right? And I'm not as bad as some other people. I mean, our, 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 our man in 2 Kings 15, 1 and 4 is not as bad as the one in verse 8. But here's the description. And here's where I'm asking God's grace for it to land on some of us. He did not tear down the high places. So here's an encouragement to you from the scripture. If you've got a high place in your life, now just name them, anger, lust, fear, anxiety, not trusting the Lord. Can we get some help from the scripture? What do we need to do? Make peace with it? Just say, so it's always going to be that way? you got a bigger God than that, friends. Because they're trying to do two things at once. I really want to walk with the Lord, and I'm not as bad as some, but I still got a high place. And maybe your high place is a place that only you know about. It's not for public consumption, but it's for, this is again why we need, we're tracking together, inward transformation. Because it might be from the outward appearance that there is no high place in your life. But on the inside, you're able to say this is what it is right there. I bow down to this. Maybe it's comfort and convenience, and that is your God. No one can serve two masters. Got a high place. I want you to know the suffering servant came in your place so that you would no longer have a different high place. Tear down the high places. They will only, only, only bring grief and sorrow. And... um. I want us to get the imagery here of what God's saying through his gracious word. High places are places that were lifted up. And it's the same word that's used here in Isaiah 53. The servant will, the Hebrew word's nasah, y'all. Y'all want to get excited about some Hebrew? Surely he has borne our griefs. means he lifts it up. Hebrew I love because it's it's a visual language. Gives us pictures, right? And so this word nasah is a glorious Hebrew word, and it means to lift up. And uh, when they would make sacrifices, they'd bring the lamb or they'd bring the dove or whatever to the priest. And the priest would take the sacrifice, and you know what the priest would do? He would lift it up, lift it up to the heavens. So the word lift up in Hebrew is the same word as forgive. I lift it up. Lifted up to you, God. A sacrifice is lifted up. Now, in your brain, you should be tracking along to a statement that Jesus said, if the Son of Man be lifted up. So Jesus is digging deep in some Hebrew language and saying, he's lifted up in order that your sins would be lifted up. All through the Old Testament in particular, the concept of sin uh, had a connotation with a heavy weight, right? 
It might resound with you, right? And it's just a weight on my shoulders. Cain, for example, when he horribly sinned against God and killed his brother Abel, and God came to him and spoke to him and gave him the curse of sin on his life, you might remember Cain's statement was, this is too much for me to bear. can't carry this, so crush me. It is a load that will crush you. What's Isaiah prophesying? Somebody's going to come in your place, and instead of you being crushed by the weight of that sin, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was, that's the language, upon him. So, some of you need to stop carrying around a weight that has been lifted up, quite frankly. Came in here today, and you are weighed down. Sometimes we think to ourselves that it's kind of a righteous thing to do, to just be weighed down by the guilt of of my sin, and it's before me. And you've got some things in your life that you've done, and it's just like it was yesterday. Why did I do that? It doesn't glorify God to keep carrying around sin that was placed on the Savior. So what we need to be is a people who build our lives on the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, that he really did carry it. He really did lift it up. I love the word, and, and this is the word that I want you to grab hold of. Every, every time we've been in Isaiah's prophecy, we just grabbed a hold of a word. Remember, Isaiah 53, y'all tracking with me? 4 through 6 is the centerpiece of this. And what's the first word in Isaiah 53, 4? The centerpiece of God's revelation to you, he has a particular word that he chooses to begin it with. Isaiah 53, verse 6, maybe he will bear our griefs. It's not what it says, is it? Perhaps, hopefully, what's the word? Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. I love the word surely. It's used 15 times in the Old Testament. It's a wonderful word. It has a meaning that brings with it an element of surprise. It has a meaning that we thought it was going to go one way, but then it goes another And you can see, as you read together, uh, the flow of Isaiah's uh, prophecy. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as from one who men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our grief. Do you know what another good English word for this Hebrew word would be? Nevertheless. Nevertheless. In spite of that. Nevertheless. And so I want to give you... uh, an encouragement this morning. You need some nevertheless in your life. What does this word mean? When we rebelled against him in the highest ways that we could rebel, when we said he has no form or majesty that we are drawn to him, we do not esteem him, nevertheless. Can we keep going with this thought? What this word means is that there is nothing greater that can come against what Jesus has done for you to override what Jesus has done for you. There is nothing that will stop him from saving the one who has faith in him. Eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from. (laughs) Nevertheless, don't believe the promise that you and Sarah are going to have a child. Nevertheless, you think Pharaoh's too mighty an enemy. Nevertheless, you believe the giants in the land are too strong. 
nevertheless. You think you should have a king like all the other nations and you choose one based on the outward appearance. Nevertheless. I want to give you a New Testament example of somebody who has some nevertheless in him. It's Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 40, we meet a man who has, I think, this spirit of neverthelessness that I want you to have in your life as a believer in Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verse 40, we meet him. And a leper. It's bad news, isn't it? In fact, in that time and place, probably the worst news that you can receive. Got leprosy? No cure. Inevitable death. And not only is it inevitable death, there's going to be a lot of, and there's going to be a lot of grief and sorrow along the way. The grief of being separated from my family, the sorrow of knowing no matter how hard I work, no matter how much I try, no matter how much money I spend, no matter what education I have, there's nothing that I can do to fix this. The leper came to him. I want you to know that those two words don't go together in that place, lepers and coming Lepers only go. But he's got some nevertheless in him, y'all. Leper came to him, imploring him. It's a strong verb in the Greek. Begging, imploring, pleading with him. What's the last thing you really pled with God about? The last time you really got on your knees and begged him to do something. You know he's a mighty God who can do mighty things. The uh, statement that he says, though, is you don't have because you don't even ask. And we often don't ask because we're counting on something else to be the remedy for our griefs and our sorrows. Not this guy. This man was brought to a very fortuitous place in his life. He said he's a leper. How was he brought to a fortuitous place in his life? He was brought to a great place in his life. Because God allowed him to come to a place in his life where all of his options were exhausted. Unfortunately, unfortunately, that's where most of us have to get before we will come to Jesus. Because we think we can handle it, right? I mean, we got this. Friends, when it comes to our griefs and our sorrows, we ain't got this. Leper came to him, if you will, you. (laughs) That's some humility right there. You can make me clean. He is acquainted with sorrows. Man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And he's moved to, the Bible says, compassion. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. He was made clean. That resound anybody's soul this morning. Say, man, that's what happened. Not on the outside of me, that's what happened on the inside of me. Because leprosy is a physical manifestation of the sin that's on the inside. Gradual but inevitable death. Leads you to be unfeeling and cut off. That's what sin does. Immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Uh, But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus 
could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. I um, can't read that passage without seeing the glorious truth that they changed places a little bit, right? Here's a leper whose destiny was to be out in desolate places and cut off. Jesus makes him clean, but then it says of Jesus, then he was out in a desolate place. And that is what the suffering servant does, friends. He trades places with you. It's our iniquity. It's our transgression. It's our sin, and it's placed upon him. Revelation 22. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to it. Revelation 22, 18 says, I warn everyone. These are the last words of the Bible, by the way. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. The last words of the Bible or that we don't need to add to or take away from what he says. And it's that thought that I have in mind to make one more point with you. And that there's two words in Isaiah 53, 4 that describe what he will do. He will lift it up. He will lift up our sorrows that are a result of our sin. But he also does something else. And I do want to say this morning that I think this is the big mistake in 2018 American Christianity is to take away the second word. And I want to explain what I mean by that. Jesus did not heal the leper so that he would remain in the leper colony. The prodigal son's father does not forgive him so that he will remain in the far country. Jesus does not say, Lazarus, wake up in there. What does he say? Lazarus, come up out of there. Because here's the glorious truth of what the suffering servant does. He lifts up the sin and he carries it away. So why are we making a big deal about this? This is why we're making a big deal about this. The servant came to forgive you of your sins and to be freed from your sins. We need both if we're truly to be healed and truly to have peace. Israel was powerfully rescued from Egypt so as to no longer live under Pharaoh's dominion but to reach the promised land. Are y'all tracking with me? Because we have false teaching in our day that is a half gospel that you can be forgiven of your sin and just stay in it. That is not the glorious good news of Jesus. We have a generation that wants forgiveness but not true freedom. And the worst deceptions include a little bit of the truth. Jesus has done enough and loves you enough to both lift up the curse of your sin and to free you and carry it away so that you no longer live in it. What good is it to lift up, your, lift up from your shoulders the burden of sin temporarily? So I'll just take that for a little bit. And then you step right back in it. This is, gets us back to uh, Wilbur. The suffering servant didn't come to scrub up your outward appearance. 
and then say, man, you look so nice here on the outside. You've dressed for Sunday. You got it all together on the outside. But then on the inside, you still have a surpassing desire for the very things that he died for to begin with. Does that make sense? This gospel's greater than that. The gospel is not an adjustment. The gospel is a transformation. You were dead, now you're alive. And it's all-encompassing. Surely, let me just say it this way, surely he's not just lifted up our griefs, but he is also, praise God Almighty, carried our sorrows. Now, I want to be an accurate teacher to the scripture. Being freed from your sins is immediate. Being delivered from the practices of the sins will go on the rest of your life. And that is true. But it is true, right? I mean, the evidence that you have been born again is not that you're sinless. You don't come to faith in Jesus and all of a sudden, okay, all of a sudden he's lifted him up and I don't sin anymore. No, it's still an ongoing fight on the inside to get you cleaned up. But it is happening, amen? Anybody having some victory over some sin in your life? Now, there's the old man. There's some old ways, and it's going to stay there until this life is over. That's the great promise. Not to be dreading death. When death comes, the sin nature, you are done with forever. Glory to God. Hallelujah. You come to my funeral, you praise God. You sing victory in Jesus and say hallelujah, amen. He is done with that short temper. He's done with that love of ease and comfort. He has been delivered. But it's also something that's ongoing right now. Does that make sense? You have a birthday, but then you keep growing. Nobody was born and then just stays. I wish sometimes my children did that. And sometimes in the church we wish we would do that, but we don't. There are growing pains, things that have to be left behind. Are we, are we together on this? Because we're coming to the Lord's table. And I want us to understand what the Lord's table is about is that Jesus has forgiven us. And then he doesn't just say, thanks for coming. He's going to stick with us. He's going to mold us and shape us and transform us. Some old ways are going to go. Some high places are going to be torn down. So you're not forgiven to stay addicted to pornography. You've not been forgiven to permit that you remain in the adulterous relationship. Jesus did not go to the cross and intervene on your behalf so you remain in love with the world. I've been to a couple of camps. <laughs> stayed with some teenagers and stayed with some children. And it's been awesome. But camp life, I'm going to tell you what. Here's what I noticed about camp life. This is totally hypothetical. Sometimes, some of the, maybe one of the people that you room with, and again, this is hypothetical. By the time they get to the end of the week, they've run out of clean clothes. Now, a way to combat that, hypothetically, is to take that shirt that was worn out in the sun and sweated in and I'll stop there and go to your bag and get Axe body spray and go to that shirt and just go to town just spraying and spraying and spraying and getting under the arms and getting all over the place 
and then you put that shirt back on. <laughs> it's hypothetical. But that is a picture of what we can do. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. This shirt doesn't stink. This shirt stinks. You didn't remove the odor. You added to it. Nothing has been lifted up and nothing has been carried away. And my grief and my sorrow has multiplied. But that's what we do, y'all. It's what we do. Can I have your forgiveness? But I want to stay in my sin. Have you had some nevertheless in your life that you want to be free of? I want these grave clothes gone. I want this leprosy that is destroying me gone. If you will, you can make me clean. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, listen to it. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and... Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what John's saying? John's saying what Isaiah said. He's going to lift it up. He's going to forgive us. And he is going to free us. Now the cleansing, it might involve some scrubbing. But what he cleanses with is greater than, more powerful than, and overcomes whatever stains us. That's what Isaiah is saying. He surely, nevertheless, we considered him sure. Nevertheless, we were not drawn to him. We did not esteem him. Nevertheless, he goes to Calvary, lifts up our sin. Lifts up our sin. Goes into the grave. Maybe this is the way you would think about it. He's lifted up. To lift up. You carrying some weight with you this morning? Here's some glorious good news. You can put it on him. It'll crush you. You'll try to make up for it, try to handle it, try to do better. No, no. You don't need to work on your bench press to get stronger, to carry more of the load. You need to remove the load and place it on Jesus. He can carry it. That's what the cross is. He's giving us a glorious visual image where the Son of Man himself is lifted up in order to lift up. Seeing some things you wish you hadn't seen, you can place it on him. Gone some places you wish you hadn't gone, he can take it. Said some words you wish you hadn't said, you can place it on him. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. It's a glorious good news, right? To forgive us of the sins. And then as in his body on that tree, he can, as Romans 8 says, he condemns sin in the flesh. There is therefore now no condemnation for you. He's taken it and then they put him in the grave. They carry him to the grave. 
And that's where we need to see where our sin nature is now. Got an old man, but he's dead. You want all this explained in great detail? Read Romans, right? The whole book is about that you've been forgiven, and now he is freeing you. Friends, do not settle. Do not settle for a half gospel. He's a glorious Savior who has the authority and the power and His grace is good enough to forgive you. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. Amen. Forgiven. But he who the Son sets free is free indeed. If then you have been set free, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery any more than on your way across dry ground at the Red Sea, you turn around and say, I prefer Pharaoh. No. Been liberated. Been, amen, uh, been, been redeemed. He did not come to make peace with our sin. He came to make peace for us. Let's read it one more time and then we'll gather around the Lord's table. And I want you to gather around the Lord's table as a forgiven child of God. And uh, I'm being freed, child of God. Amen? Well, let's start in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Nevertheless, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. We have a place at his table because of his grace. So I'm going to pray in just a moment. And then those of you who are here this morning and you have united yourself to Christ by faith, you are invited to participate in communion this morning. Let's pray together. Father, I pray in Jesus' name for some high places to be torn down and not to be rebuilt. I pray some strongholds to be freed, to be freed from. I pray you'd give us a measure of the leper in Mark 1, a measure of his faith. You can do it. You can make me clean. Give us a clear understanding of the whole counsel of Scripture, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins, but you will also cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we confess that we come to your table completely dependent upon you and your grace and the completed work of Jesus on our behalf. Thank you for substitutionary atonement. One died instead of us in order to reconcile us to you. So we come to remember, we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, sober-minded and watchful. Pray in these moments as we observe and participate and think and pray, and worship the Lamb of God. In Jesus' name, amen.